Ladies and gentlemen, God wants us to live a life like Jesus, amen? A life of servitude, a life of faithfulness, a life of obedience, and a life of communion. And like Joshua, Joshua was somebody who did not start off that way. Joshua did not start off being called the servant of the Lord. He was somebody who was simply called the assistant of Moses. But as he grew in his faithfulness and as he grew in his communion, God could say at the end of his life, this is my servant. Can God say the same about you? Can God say to you, this is my servant. This one works for me. Can the Lord count on you for his work? When God has something for you to do or for something for you to share, can he count on you and say, you know what, I know that person's going to do it. I know they're going to be obedient to me. Can you be called the servant of the Lord? Now, the reason why I want you to examine this question is because God wants you to live a life where you are searching after that type of condition, that you are becoming a servant of the Lord. And that takes place each and every day as you give yourself to Jesus and you say to the Lord, God, make me faithful today in your service. It was very interesting. I was just doing a lot of office work, meeting with various people. I had some time off before my next meeting and I was like, you know what I'll do? I'll just go to Walmart. And I was going to go buy some stuff. I don't go to Walmart randomly. I just thought I'll go there and get some stuff. As soon as I, you know, parked my car, I just said to myself, I said, you know what? Maybe God has me here for a witness. And I said, Lord, whatever your providence wants, me, wants to lead me into, so be it. And as soon as I put the car in park, boom, look to the right. And it was somebody who comes to our church. And I was like, brother, how you doing? And we were talking. And it was just a blessing. And I said, you know what? Please come to church this Sabbath. I'd love to see you. And it was just a powerful conversation we had. And I was like, praise the Lord. And I walked out and I was like, maybe God has somebody else. Boom! Right before I was even done talking, there was somebody else. It was somebody I'd shared my testimony with um, who works for one of the uh, dry cleaner companies. And I was like, God is just answering this prayer left and right. If you want to experience some powerful things, go to Walmart and pray. Amen? Look, you think I'm joking right now, but when you're going into a public place, you ought to be praying, God, I want you to use me as your witness. You know, I went to Best Buy um, a few days ago, and I ran into somebody who, right before, I was just praying, Lord, please use me as to be your witness. I was doing, sending out a bunch of emails, writing a bunch of things that whole day. I really didn't feel uh, just like I was a powerful witness for the Lord that day. You know, and I said, okay, God, please use me. Went to Best Buy, and I ran into somebody who I went to school with, and I started talking to them, and I found out he was interested in the Bible. Here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. God wants to use you in the work of God. Amen? And every day, you just have to pray a simple prayer. You don't even have to get on your knees. When I pulled up to Walmart, I was in my truck. And I pulled in, I wasn't even done driving all the way. I didn't have the car all the way in park yet. And I was just like, God, use me today in your province. Boom! The prayer's answered. God can do the same for you. Ladies and gentlemen, God wants you to be his servants. 
Amen? And every day you just pray a simple prayer. God, use me today in your service. You go to the store, say Sunday, and you just say, okay, Lord, I don't know why I'm here. Maybe I'm doing my shopping, grocery shopping. God, use me today in your witness. You would be surprised how fast God is waiting to answer that prayer. And if there ever is a time God is waiting to answer that prayer, and angels are just shaking, waiting to use you as a powerful witness, it's now. At the close of human history, God is just waiting for this prayer to be answered. Can you say amen to that? So one thing we begin to understand about Joshua is that he became the servant of the Lord. He didn't start off that way, but through various events and the outreach that God called him to do, he became the servant of the Lord. And God could say confidently, this is my servant. But one of the things I want you to also see about the life of Joshua is this. After they had conquered much of the land, there was a time when they were dividing up the land, and they were dividing up the land according to the various tribes. And so one tribe group would go there, one tribe group would go there, another tribe group would go there, and another tribe group would go there. And Joshua, when he was done dividing up all these tribes, and it took a long time because some of these other pagan tribes refused to get out of the area, so Joshua had to give specific instruction. Other parts of the land needed some more warfare done to just kind of boot out the Canaanites. And so while all this long process was taking place, Joshua waited till the end to choose his own inheritance. But what is so interesting is what he chooses as his own inheritance. I'm going to show you something powerful. Take your Bible. Go to Joshua. Go to Joshua chapter 19. What did Joshua choose as his inheritance? This man who had grown to be the servant of the Lord, what did he choose as his inheritance? This is powerful stuff here, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 49, chapter 19, verse 49. Are we all there? Page 221 in these black Bibles. Look what the Bible says about this. Verse 49. When they had made an end of dividing the land as in what? An inheritance according to their borders. Now watch this. The children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua the son of Nun. And I'm sure they were willing to say, look Joshua, you blessed us, you helped lead us into this holy land. We've walked over 40 years to get to this point. We came out of Egypt and here we are, we finally arrived and we're finally putting down roots. And they say, Joshua, whatever you want. You pick the place that you want, and we're going to make sure you get it. You want the best of that land? You will get it. You want waterfalls? We'll, we'll make it happen. And they were so inclined to give Joshua whatever land he wanted because of his hard work. I want you to see what he actually chooses. Verse 50. According to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he what? As for Timnath Sarah. In the mountains of Ephraim, and he built the city and dwelt in it. Now, the reason why this is so interesting, this was just a little rugged place. There was nothing special about this city except for one thing. I was doing a lot of study on this, and I found out what the commentators were really honing in on this when it comes to this particular city and why this city was super important. It was less than a day's journey from the sanctuary. It was less than a day's journey from the sanctuary. You know why that is so powerful? Because what took place in the sanctuary? The presence of God was manifested. 
And so here Joshua says, look, they, the people tell him, Joshua, you can be anywhere you want in the land of Canaan, several miles, if you want to just retreat all the way into the woods because you're tired of dealing with us. Hey, sure enough, we'll make it happen, and you could just hide behind those trees, and no one will know you're here. You can just retire in comfort and in safety, and you can just live out your lives as we're reestablishing leadership. And you know what's so interesting? Is that he chooses another kind of place, a place that was so unusual. He doesn't choose to live far away from the center of Israel. He chooses to live very close to the center of Israel, which was the sanctuary. Why? Because Joshua was committed to God. And Joshua always wanted to be near the presence of God. And in a time where he could have chose anywhere else to live, he chose to be closest to the place where God was most manifested. The Bible even talks about Joshua, even Moses, earlier on. Moses oftentimes would go to the sanctuary to commune with God. And the Bible even tells us, I believe it's in Numbers, that Joshua, after Moses left, would still be near the sanctuary and he would fall asleep near the sanctuary. Most critical moments these things fall off. You hear what I'm saying? The reason why this needs to stick to us, ladies and gentlemen, is because God is calling us to be committed to his work and be committed to his church. You see, we have to not develop this kind of categorized religion, sort of this, sort of this thing where it's just, yeah, that's my religion over there and this is the rest of my life. For the servants of God, this was their life. And they built around the church. They built around the presence of God because to them, that was the most important thing. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to re-examine these things. And we, begin to, we really need to start praying, wait a minute, what is God up to and what does he want us to do with our lives? God will bless you as you seek to honor him. Amen? But there's another point I want to make. And I believe this is one of the most powerful points in the book of Joshua. And I believe this is what we're honing in on. As they're done dividing up the land, the Bible tells us something remarkable about the inheritance that God was giving to the various tribes. After the system was all done, after everything was taking place, Reuben got over there, Judah got over there, Joshua got over there, Caleb got over there, Manasseh got over there, and they were dividing up the tribes. And when they were done, God says, but there is one more thing that needs to be instituted with the land. Go to the next chapter. Chapter 20. Look what the Bible says. It's very powerful. The Lord spoke to Joshua saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying, appoint for yourselves Cities of what? Refuge. Of which I spoke to you through Moses. God tells Joshua, Joshua, what I want you to do before you completely retire, I want you to make sure there are places called cities of refuge within the whole encampment of Israel. Well, what's a city of refuge? Let's keep going. That the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there. And they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. 
Verse 5, that if the avenger of the blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unintentionally, and he did not hate him beforehand. Verse 6, and he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of the, pre, of the one who is the high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. And what begins to take place is they begin to actually institute six, or I should say six, refuge cities. Three on one side of the Jordan and three on the other side of Jordan. And the reason why these cities of refuge were super important was because if someone committed probably one of the most egregious crimes, he killed somebody, took the life of somebody, and he did it unintentionally or accidentally. In other words, it wasn't meditated, premeditated. That individual, in fear of losing his life, could run to the city of refuge, and as he was in the city of refuge, he would just say, look everybody, there's a man trying to kill me. And the elders would immediately say, okay, come in, and we'll guard you. And there were six of these that were developed. You know, back then, God was using the system, and the system was an eye for an eye. And so when God was dealing with this idea of justice, he had to make sure that people would essentially get a fair trial. And so when someone accidentally kills somebody, say they're just swinging an axe, that's actually an example the Bible uses, and the axe head comes flying off and just chops somebody's head off, all of a sudden the relatives of that individual said, now your head is coming off. And so that person would take off running, and he would take off running, and he knew where the cities of refuge were. And as soon as he entered into the cities, the elders closed the gate. He would tell them what was going on, and the elders said, you stay here, we're going to guard you until you get a fair trial. Six of these cities were set up. God was making sure things were done in a very legitimate way. And so you can imagine these cities having some special places within Israel. I found out some interesting facts about the city of refuge. Number one, they were established by God before they were needed. Before they were needed. Number two, they were available and accessible to all Israelites. And watch this. The Bible even says in Deuteronomy, and the strangers. In other words, the foreigners could run there if they accidentally killed an Israelite. Point number three. Their gates were always open. Their gates were always open. Point number four. They were widely advertised. You say, what do you mean by that? They were actually, the Torah talks about how there were actually signposts along the way. And these signposts say, would say, refuge. And so when a person is running, he's just like, where do I go? All of a sudden he would see the signpost and it would say refuge and he'd be like... I know where to go. And he's just following the signpost, getting as fast as he could to that city of refuge because he knew as soon as he entered into that city, he was safe. Here's another point. All the cities of refuge were prominently located at high elevations so that they could be seen from great distances. You're going to be blown away with what I'm going to share with you in just a bit. Everyone was within a day's journey of them. That's not the powerful point yet, but that's powerful. You see, God set up these sort of the, these places of mercy that if someone did something and they just looked back and they were just like, oh, what did I do? They could run there. In fact, what's so interesting, the word says this. It says in Joshua that if someone committed a crime unwittingly, or as the translation says, without cunning. By the way, who's the first person in scripture who we're told was cunning? Satan. That's very important. 
So here they are, they have these cities of refuge, and you can just imagine someone did something bad, and they would be running, they would go as fast as they could, they see the signpost and say, yes, in that general direction, and they take off. As soon as they got in there, they were safe. The cities of refuge were set up by God to be in very important places in the Israelite community. God was safeguarding against corruption. And he was making sure the governments understood what fair justice and trials are all. And you can take a good look in the news media right now. There's a whole lot of talk about uh, sort of these high-profile high profile killing cases. And a lot of people are asking different questions. But beside that, looking at what the Bible was saying, the Bible was saying something so remarkable that if a person did something like that, they could run and find refuge. And you're still saying to me, what is your point? Are you ready? Go to chapter 21. You see, chapter 21 is about another group who did not get an inheritance. They were the Levites. The Levites did not get an inheritance. In fact, Moses says, you don't get an inheritance. The Lord is your inheritance. But I want you to see something. After God's done dividing up all the Israelite tribes, and he's done talking about the city of refuge, he begins to talk, inspire Joshua to say something about the Levites. Take your Bible, go to verse 13, chapter 21. This blew me away. Hopefully it does the same for you. Are we all there? Thus to the children of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron, with its common land, a city of refuge for the what? Did you guys get that? No, I don't think you guys got it. The high priest was to live in the place of mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, God is trying to say something about the character of God. That God is the place of mercy. Can you say amen to that? For a sinner who is in need, they can find a refuge where? With the Lord. In fact, that's why we read 17 different times in the book of Psalms, the Lord is our refuge, the Lord is our refuge, the Lord is our refuge. Over and over again, what God was trying to say and what God was trying to point out, that the high priest of Israel, Aaron and his descendants, would live in the cities of refuge. They would be a place of mercy for those who had sinned, for those who committed crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, who's the high priest of our church? Who's the high priest of our church? Come on, you guys. Who's the high priest of the church? Yeah, okay, but who's the high priest of the church? Yeah, who is the high priest of this church? No, not me at all. (laughs) It always is Jesus. But here's the thing. I ought to still be able to ask you that question 10 times, and you still ought to be able to say Jesus. Don't you ever think I'm a high priest? There's nothing special about this garment. I got this at uh, Men's Warehouse. These aren't priestly garments. Now, the reason why I keep asking the question, Lisa, is because I want you to be so sure that even if someone questioned you a million times, you can still say the exact same answer because you know it's true. Jesus is our only high priest. Can you say amen to that? In fact, what is so interesting about this, we're learning something powerful. We're learning that Jesus, the high priest, is the city of refuge. He is that place of mercy. In fact, look what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his what? Brethren, that he might be a what? Merciful and faithful high priest. The high priest would be where the place of mercy was. 
That if someone needed a mediator, they could go to somebody who was compassionate. If someone needed help, they could go to somebody who understood the weaknesses of humanity. Can you say amen to that? Ladies and gentlemen, your high priest who intercedes for you right now in the most holy place is the place of mercy. Can you say amen to that? And if you ever need help, and if you need a refuge, you can go straight to Jesus because he understands where you come from. Amen? I heard somebody put it this way. They said this. Satan knows our name, but he calls us by our sin. Jesus knows our sin, but he calls us by our name. Amen? With Jesus, we can find a place of refuge. And this is what God was trying to help the children of Israel understand. And that was that their high priest was to dwell in a place of compassion, of mercy, and sympathy for the fugitive sinner. And this was to point to Jesus who would enter in, who would take off the garments of sacrifice and enter into the garments of the high priestly ministry that he himself would be a place of mercy for the sinner. That in him they could find a refuge. That with our high priest we could find somebody who understands your weaknesses and understands my weaknesses. Amen? Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for Jesus. I love what Hebrews chapter 4 says right here. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of what? Grace, that we may obtain mercy and find what? Grace to help in time of need. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to understand this simple point right here. And that is, Jesus is a place of mercy. Jesus is a place of mercy. I remember I was talking to one brother and he says, right now I don't deserve mercy. And I said to him, when did you ever deserve it? (laughs) Amen? When did you ever deserve mercy? When did you ever deserve grace? If you deserve grace, it's not grace. Amen? You can't earn grace. If you earn grace, you're not earning grace. Because grace cannot be earned. It can only be given. Mercy cannot be earned. It can only be given. And that's why when we're looking to our intercessor right now in heaven, ladies and gentlemen, we need to understand he is a place of mercy. He is our refuge. You may be somebody who is struggling right now with various things, and you're just thinking to yourself, Lord, how come I'm just not overcoming? Then you need to stay in the proximity of Jesus. And as long as you are in the proximity of Jesus, Jesus will hold you fast. Can you say amen to that? You may be somebody who's just thinking, God, how can I ever be saved? Then you run to Jesus. You run to that place of mercy and don't you stop until you get there. Because Jesus is the one who will hold you. Can you say amen to that? And unless you choose to leave that place, he will not let you go. Our only argument is our great need. God is not looking for people who can talk eloquently with him. He is not looking for people who can say the right words. He is looking for people who are willing to come to him and simply confess they need his help. Jesus is our high priest. Can you say amen to that? Jesus is our place of mercy. And in him, we find the grace that we need. I love what Ellen White says. She's describing a fugitive. She says, and this fugitive was on the run. 
You see, he had done some bad things, and she's describing this fugitive, and she's saying, he's running, and he's just sweating, he's getting tired, and you can hear people coming off in the back, and you can just hear just like the dogs are coming, and just like he knows he needs to get to this place of refuge. And in that run, and in that journey, she is describing the Christian, that with all his heart, he needs to make sure that he gets to that special place of refuge. Ladies and gentlemen, our sanctuary message is extremely important. And God wants us to understand right now that the place of mercy is still available. That the intercession of the most holy place is even greater and more powerful for God's people than they truly understand. With him they will not only find pardon, but they will find the power that is needed. The same Jesus who said, neither do I condemn you, will also say to you, go and sin no more. Can you say amen to that? God is offering this to you, and he wants you to recognize this. How many people are blessed and say, Lord, I just thank you so much for being my place of mercy, my high priest. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you for the beautiful sanctuary message, which with each component, Lord, that shows us the great plan of redemption, that shows us the beauty of grace and the blessings of justification. And God, as long as we are in proximity, we know that you will hold us. Help us not to leave your side, God. Thank you so much for not only pardon, but for power to overcome those weaknesses. And God, our simple prayer is and always is, Lord, save us. Save us from this world and change our hearts and do what we cannot do. God, we confess our Laodicean condition that you may bless us. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.